Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today, our episode comes from our most recent annual conference, Rebuilding the Economy After the Pandemic, Challenges and Avenues of Reform. We will pick up from where we left off last and discuss a world without money, interest, or debt with Thomas Greco. Mr. Greco is a scholar, author, educator, and community economist who has been working at the leading edge of transformational restructuring for more than 35 years. He is widely regarded as a leading authority on moneyless exchange systems, community currencies, financial innovation, community-based economic development, and is a widely sought-after international speaker. He has traveled throughout Europe, Asia, Oceania, and the Americas, lecturing, teaching, and advising. He has been a speaker at numerous conferences and has held many workshops in over 16 countries. We were lucky enough to talk with Mr. Greco about central banks' role in the economy, how money and wealth are created, and how we can achieve economic equity and justice. We hope you enjoyed this talk, and make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Okay, this is based on a presentation that I gave uh, back in November of last year uh, for the University of Hertfordshire in the UK. And that session took a full hour and a half, including Q&A. Uh, I know I'm not going to be able to get through even this pared down version. You know, I'll try to do what I can in the time that we have available for it. Uh, I would uh, encourage you to view the entire presentation uh, that was recorded. It's on my website, beyondmoney.net. And uh, so anything that I'm unable to cover in today's presentation, uh, you can catch up with. So it should be the top item on my home page. If I put anything up that's new, you might have to scroll down one or two screens. So anyway, um, a world without money, interest, and debt. Now, this is going to seem preposterous to any conventionally trained economist because these elements have been such a, a fundamental uh, part of uh, our money and banking system for at least 300 years. But uh, when you think about it, uh, what is actually money? We're all taught that money is a medium of exchange, a store of value, and a measure of value. But that might have been true at one time when money consisted of a commodity like a gold coin or a silver coin, but it certainly isn't true today. Today's money is not a commodity. Today's money is credit. So the primary function of money is really to be a medium of exchange. Now, the store of value function gets taken care of in different ways. Uh, you don't store your value by having uh, money in your checking account. You have a portfolio of investments of different kinds. Uh, likewise, measure of value. Uh, we used to measure value in terms of gold units or silver units, but uh, that has long since gone by the boards. Uh, the final link to gold was ended with uh, the closing of the gold window by President Nixon in 1971. But you know, now we don't have any objective measure of value. The currency actually measures itself, which is uh, something that really doesn't work. 
So the best that those definitions tell us is what money does, not what money is. And so we have to ask the question of why do we have money? Money provides a means of payment. It's a, it's a way of facilitating the exchange of real value, that is goods and services. And why do we have interest? Interest is a reward for taking risk uh, in the capital formation process. But interest isn't the only way that we can record risk-taking uh, or reward risk-taking. And uh, debt is not the only kind of uh, instrument, the only kind of value claim uh, that we have. Uh, just to outline a few, uh, instead of debt, we could have equity shares or, or revenue shares. Uh, these are uh, like when you have a share of stock that you own in a corporation, you are a part owner. You have a residual claim on part of the net profits after all expenses are paid. So that's a different kind of claim to interest uh, which is charged on, on debt. So the question then becomes who is qualified to issue money? If money is a credit instrument, it's simply a promise by the issuer to redeem it for something of value. The proper basis of issue then is goods and services that providers are ready, willing, and able to deliver immediately or in the near future when you, uh, when you pay them with their own money. So money has a beginning and it has an ending. It, it is issued when it is spent into circulation by a provider of real value, and it is extinguished when it goes back to that provider uh, when he accepts it in payment for real goods and services. So only providers of real goods and services are really qualified to issue money. Political control of money is a usurpation of that power, and it ultimately leads to tyranny. Now, Frederick Soddy, he was a Nobel Prize winning chemist who later in life got interested in the money problem. Uh, he said that political money is nothing is the nothing you get for something before you can get anything. In other words, you sell something that's really worth something uh, and you get money, political money in return, which you need to get whatever else uh, you might need. So Salmon P. Chase was the uh, treasury secretary during the Lincoln administration. Uh, Lincoln needed money to fight the Civil War. And uh, the bankers were willing to lend money for that purpose, but at ex exorbitant rates of interest. And so uh, Lincoln went to his advisors and he said, how can we finance this war without going into extreme debt to the bankers? And they came up with the, the greenback solution, which was to issue paper currency directly from the treasury and use that to pay the costs of the war. Salmon P. Chase uh, was uh, overseeing this process, but later on, he was uh, named to the Supreme Court. And as a Supreme Court justice, he said, the legal tender quality, that is, that is what gives uh, uh, political money, its force, is only valuable for the purposes of dishonesty. 
And that is true. If a currency needs to stand on its own merits as a value claim, then it should not have legal tender status. Uh, a government, if it's an issuer of money based on its anticipated tax revenues, it of course is required to accept this money back in payment for those taxes, but it should not dictate to private parties what they are to use as an exchange medium or means of payment. So looking back on the history of Western civilization, we've seen that it's been characterized by exploitation and domination in many different ways. Uh, colonialism, dispossession, slavery of different kinds, predatory commerce, which leads to monopoly and oligopoly, and uh, increasing collusion between politicians, financiers, and corporatists. So I've been saying for a long time that civilization is on the brink of collapse, whether it's a sudden collapse or a gradual uh, disintegration. You know, we have all of these things converging at once, changing environment, uh, pollution of land, water, and air, uh, the end of cheap fossil fuels, resource depletion, financial disruptions, uh, bankruptcies, bailouts, and general institutional failure. We've had massive corruption in all sectors because of the concentration of power and wealth in a few hands. So I discovered long ago, you know, early in my 45 years of researching these subjects, that the driver of this destructive uh, process is the growth imperative, which is built into the debt money system. Uh, debt is the basis for the creation of money and interest is charged on that money. So we have a continual pressure for, um, for the economy to grow in order for debtors to be able to pay what they owe to the banks. Several of my uh, colleagues have argued that the driver is really the availability of cheap fossil fuel energy. But I say, no, that's the enabler, but it's not the driver. The driver is compound interest that's built into the debt money system. Uh, the break, of course, is nature. You cannot have perpetual exponential growth on a finite planet. John and Kenneth Galbraith was one of the leading economists of the 20th century. And he said, the process by which banks create money is so simple that the mind is repelled. And uh, that's been clear to me for a long time. Every time I give a discussion or, or, uh, or presentation on these subjects, I see people's eyes glaze over and they can't just uh, believe that it's so simple. But uh, here's a working paper from the Bank of England published in 2015, where it comes right out and it says, in the real world, banks provide financing through money creation. So there it is, banks create money. They create deposits of new money through lending. And in doing so are mainly constrained by profitability and solvency considerations. So, you know, we've heard uh, for a long time about legal reserve requirements. Well, there are no reserve requirements. I mean, many countries have had no legal reserve requirements for a long time. And uh, since the financial crisis of 2008, uh, 
legal reserve requirements have been withdrawn just about everywhere. So that was no news to me because I had discovered the same thing back in uh, the mid 1970s when I read this book uh, from the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago called Modern Money Mechanics. And it says the same thing. The actual process of money creation takes place primarily in banks. And the money is the checkable liabilities of banks. That's what money is. These liabilities are customers' accounts. So you have an account at the bank, you have a uh, so-called deposit in your account, that's money. And the banks create that money when they make loans. So looking at a visual representation of this, uh, you've got a bank, you go to the bank and you say, uh, I want a mortgage loan to buy a house. So the bank takes your note, that's an asset on their books, and they make a deposit to your account, which is a liability on their books. That's debt money that's been created uh, by two booking, bookkeeping entries on the bank's books. So the banks create money as deposits when a loan is granted. The problem with this process is they charge interest on these loans and the interest is not created at the same time that the principal is created. So as time goes on, the amount that you owe to the bank increases because of the interest that's levied on the loan. So there's never enough money in circulation to allow everyone who's in debt to pay back what they owe to the banks. Now you've got to realize that money has a beginning as and an ending. It, it begins when the banks make a loan and create a deposit. But as you repay, the principal on your loan, that part of the loan, that part of the money that was created goes out of existence. It's extinguished, it no longer exists. So as you repay what's owed to the bank, the money supply shrinks unless banks make additional loans to somebody else. And that can be either a private sector loan or a loan to the government. So this is an enormous power uh, that we have allowed to become centralized in few hands. And these are a few quotes that emphasize that point. Uh, the Rothschild uh, patriarch is said to have uh, said this, give me the power to create a nation's money and I care not who makes its laws. You know, the, who pays the piper calls the tune. And if you have the power to create money, you can buy the laws, uh, any of the laws that you want. Uh, Reginald McKenna was president of Midland Bank. He said, those who create and issue money and credit direct the policies of government and hold in the hollow of their hands the destiny of the people. E.C. Regal, my primary source uh, of information and knowledge about all of this, says the debt economy rests upon a conspiracy between the political state and the banking interests against commercial exchange. And there are an enormous number of quotes that you can find uh, that tell the same basic story. So this collusive arrangement that uh, Regal talks about goes back to the creation of central banks. Uh, the quintessential uh, central bank was the Bank of England. Now, this was the prototype started in 1694. 
William III was uh, king of England. He was fighting a war against France, needed money to fight the war. Uh, taxation on subjects is always limited. So William Patterson and his cohorts who wanted to found the Bank of England came to the king and said, we'll give you all the money you need to fight your war or do whatever else you want to do if you will give us, the Bank of England, the privilege of issuing banknotes into circulation and charging interest on them. So the Bank of England got to create money out of nothing virtually, charge interest on it, and uh, the government got to spend money beyond its ability to tax its subjects. So this collusive arrangement between the financial power and the political power has continued a relentless drive toward a fascist, uh, fascist tyranny, which is basically on our doorstep today. Uh, going back to Roosevelt, he was one of the people that uh, warned about this. He says, the first truth is that the liberty of a democracy is not safe if the people tolerate the growth of private power to a point where it becomes stronger than the democratic state itself. That is in essence, fascism. Ownership of government by an individual, by a group or any other controlling private power. So now we have this merging of private and public power into what I call the super class. Now, Carol Quigley was a professor at Georgetown University. Uh, he, he was a historian in the Foreign Service School. He was a mentor to former President Clinton and many other people that went into government. And in 66, he wrote a book called Tragedy and Hope, A History of the World in Our Time. And it's a long book, it's almost a thousand pages. And this is a, a little bit of what he exposed about the elite objectives. He said the powers of financial capitalism had a far reaching aim, nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands, able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. Each central bank sought to dominate its government by its ability to control treasury loans, manipulate foreign exchanges, influence the level of economic activity in the country, and to influence cooperative politicians. So we're told that the purpose of a central bank is to keep inflation uh, under control uh, and to try to maintain employment as close to optimum and keep unemployment uh, as low as possible. Well, basically the purpose of a central bank is to spread the pain amongst the peasants. Uh, and that will be either in the form of inflation of the currency or in recessions and uh, loss of employment and uh, things of that sort. The true purpose of central bank is to enable the monopolization of credit and the practice of usury by the banking cartel, to enable profligate spending by national governments and to enrich and empower the super class. So what are governments doing to keep this flawed system alive? Uh, the game pretty much ended in 2008 uh, with the financial crisis. Uh, the entire global financial system was on the verge of collapse. And uh, we saw at, at that time the implementation of government and 
central bank policies in collusion to keep the system alive with something called quantitative easing. So we see that governments have always been in debt, even the most uh, prosperous and rich uh, nations uh, have governments that are continually in debt and becoming ever more deeply in debt. So under this flawed money system, we have the central government assuming the role of borrower of last resort. You know, we're told that central banks are the lenders of last resort to prevent bank runs and uh, uh, collapse of the financial system. But as I said, because money is extinguished when loans are repaid, uh, you have a continual uh, decrease in the money supply through that process. New loans need to be made. And uh, when the private sector has taken on as much debt as it is able to service, uh, the government must step in to keep the money supply pumped up by borrowing money instead. So this graphic pretty much tells the story. I've updated the numbers today. Uh, on the left, you see currently US government debt is uh, $29.7 trillion. That's about one and a quarter times GDP, uh, almost $90,000 per person, every man, woman, and child in the United States. And this comes from the USA debt clock. Uh, the graphic on the right, is not up to date, it only goes up to 2020. And if you look at this top point, uh, that shows total debt about 23 trillion uh, at the end of 2020. In the last uh, two years, well actually in the last year or so, uh, that has gone up $6.7 trillion. So how long can this continue? Looking at the uh, total debt for all sectors, public and private, and this only goes to 2016, uh, you see the same exponential uh, expansion. Well, quantitative easing was invented uh, actually in the early 2000s in Japan when, ja when the Japanese economy and financial system was facing a, a crisis. But then in 2008, with the globalization of the financial crisis, all of the central banks uh, took on this process of quantitative easing. And you can see how it's exponentially grown over time. Uh, so now we have a total of $24 trillion on the balance sheet, on the balance sheets of the various central banks. So the political money regime is dysfunctional and exploitative. A large, function, a large proportion of the money is improperly issued. It doesn't go where it needs to go. It exploits productive enterprise. Uh, it's manipulated for the benefit of the controllers, creating a power elite and wealthy superclass, centralizing power and wealth ever more uh, uh, greatly in the hands of a few. <clears throat> it undermines democratic government. Uh, pretty much all semblance of democratic government has disappeared now. Uh, it creates inequity and class conflict. And as I said, it forces this continual 
economic growth. So interest-bearing debt is exploding to impossible levels. Uh, we have massive bank interventions in securities markets, guaranteed profits and reduced liability for banks and corporations. You know, it used to be that when a corporate charter was granted, uh, it was limited in time and limited to a particular purpose that was deemed to be in the, in the public interest. So uh, the privilege of limited liability was allowed uh, to provide for this greater public benefit. But, you know, all of those restraints on corporate uh, actions have gone by the boards because the corporatists and the, the power elite have been able to get uh, legislation uh, favorable to their continual empowerment. So we've seen, especially since 2020, with the, uh, the pandemic and government response to it, uh, the destruction of small independent businesses. Now, all of the, act, all of the actions of government uh, favor increasing scale and size of corporations. And uh, they're basically driving the SMEs, small and medium-sized enterprises out. And we're seeing that access to healthcare, education, and livelihood are increasingly contingent upon compliance with the demands of big brother state. <coughs> so where is civilization headed? Are we gonna end up in a Mad Max scenario? Or can we see a societal metamorphosis from an old caterpillar society to what I call the butterfly society, which is based on different values and uh, different uh, ways of restructuring. I don't know if I'm gonna be able to get too far into this, but I, I envision an emerging butterfly society based on human solidarity, cooperation, and mutual aid. To resolve our predicament, we have to eliminate the growth imperative. We have to decentralize control of credit. We have to separate money from the state. We have to end this collusive arrangement. We have to end creation of money based on interest-bearing debt. We have to tame the corporate beast. We have to rein in its power. Uh, if we allow corporations, they should be strictly limited in what they can do and for how long they can do it. We need to rebuild from the bottom up with existing communities, starting with people we trust at the local level. Uh, we have to build new institutions that are better able to provide what is needed and harmonize incentives with the desired outcomes. So when you look at how we transfer value, basically there are three ways. There's the gift, uh, I give you freely and don't expect anything in return. Uh, there are coerced appropriations where I'm forced to give up value either by taxation, theft, theft or robbery, or we have the main area which is called reciprocal exchange where you expect to get as much as you give and give as much as you get. 
So relying on political fiat money for reciprocal exchange, uh, we end up with a leaky bucket because of all the drains that are built into the political fiat money system. We need to have innovative mechanisms of, of exchange that do not have those exploitative drains built in. So the way we do that is by private currencies issued by producers or by direct credit clearing amongst buyers and sellers who are qualified uh, to produce and issue money. So these are reliable sources of credit and supplemental payment media that are based on real value that's locally created. And these can circulate alongside uh, political fiat money and gradually replace it. So to recap, a proper currency is a credit instrument that represents value of goods and services that are available for services for, for, uh, for sale now or in the immediate future. Uh, it's not speculative. It's basically a monetization of goods that are in the market, in inventory, ready to be sold, or services that people are able to provide uh, within the next couple or three months. So this graphic, I think, helps to explain uh, currency creation and redemption. Uh, I've got three groups here. I've got uh, a business or municipal issuer. I've got workers and suppliers. And I've got merchants and uh, other participants in the economy. The process begins when a business or municipal government issues a currency in return for labor services or supplies that it gets from this group of workers and suppliers. So this is strictly voluntary. Uh, this group has to agree to accept the currency and they will do that if they know they can spend the currency to get what they need from merchants in the community. And those merchants can then circulate it amongst themselves and the currency can circulate throughout the community uh, to all participants in the economy, knowing that they can turn it back to the issuer in return for goods and services that the issuer has available. So if you have a trusted issuer, let's say like a local electric power company, spending power notes or solar dollars, as I call them, into circulation, uh, that has a solid foundation. That currency will be acceptable on its own merits, and it can circulate throughout the community and in any number of times before it's paid back to the issuer, let's say the power company, to pay for electric power services. So you can think of any number of possibilities. The issuer can be a a large farm producer, uh, could be a municipal government, uh, any kind of business that provides something that's of real value and in general demand. <clears throat> Direct credit clearing is uh, another approach. Uh, you know, banks clear obligations amongst themselves uh, all the time. You used to have in every community uh, a clearinghouse 
to perform that function. Well, sellers of real goods and services can do direct clearing amongst themselves. Uh, in this clearing association, traders agree to keep a ledger. Their sales will offset their purchases. So goods and services pay for other goods and services. There's no money needed. When you buy something, your account is debited. When you sell something, your account is credited. So credit lines are allocated to each participant in proportion to the value of the goods and services they're able to bring to the party. Uh, pictorially, we form an association and I distinguish two kinds of members, issuing members and non-issuing members. The process begins when an issuing member, one of the greenies, uh, uses his credit line to pay another member for something of value. That member then uses the credit to get what he needs from somebody else. And then she gets what she needs from somebody else and so on. The credit circulates throughout the association. Eventually the issuer accepts it back for something of real value that she has to offer. So this process uh, is basically the credit clearing process which is the ultimate, in my view, in the evolution of the mutual uh, credit clearing exchange process or the reciprocal exchange process. So what I see for the future of reciprocal exchange is mutual credit clearing exchanges proliferating around the world. Uh, you know, we have currently scores of commercial trade exchanges providing this uh, credit clearing uh, service. And they do billions of dollars worth of trading for their members every year. Uh, they will develop standards of design and practice, which will allow these local exchanges to be networked together effectively into a worldwide web of exchange that will maintain control of credit at the community level but provide a globally useful means of payment. So that's as far as I think I can take it and still leave time for Q and A. Um, these are some references that I would uh, encourage you to consult. And again, my website beyondmoney.net has a more complete presentation. Uh, that includes uh, a couple other things, which I will just briefly show you. Um, I'm not gonna take the time to show you this, but this is my visionary video of uh, this global network of exchange that I mentioned. So I'll leave it at that and uh, open it for discussion. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org.
If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.